Now, last week, uh, if you were here, we spent considerable time talking about the gospel, talking about the power of the gospel and Paul, the apostle Paul's focus on preaching the gospel. And that led me to a question in my own life this week. And here's the question that I was pondering in my life. How much confidence do I have in the gospel? How much confidence do you have in the gospel? Specifically, do you honestly believe that the power of the gospel can influence a culture like Kuki, California? I mean, think about it. Abortion has now been codified. We have immorality up the wazoo. We have violence abounding. We have corruption that just seems to invade and spread like wildfire. I mean, can the gospel of salvation, can the power of God for salvation, can it honestly impact Kuki, California? Do you have confidence in that fact? I think Paul did. I think Paul had confidence in the gospel of salvation, in the power of the gospel for even Kuki, California. Look what he said in the book of Romans. He said this, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, in that slide, he says, I'm not ashamed. That term ashamed, not ashamed means I'm confident. I have full confidence in the gospel. Man, I'm confident in it. Why? It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is as written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So let me ask you, do you have confidence that the gospel, last week we talked about it, stripping away all the stuff we love to add to it, that the gospel has the power to transform culture in Kooky, California. See, I'm telling you, this book, our study through the book of Acts, man, it has grown my confidence in the gospel. You want to know why? Because of the way the gospel influenced cities like Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Acts chapter 19. If you're new with us, we've been going through Acts. We're now finally in chapter 19. Paul's in the midst of his third missionary journey. We've been following this map around where the Apostle Paul started his whole vision, his whole missionary journey down here in Antioch, and his plan was to strengthen churches. Man, I just want to embolden Christians. I want to root them deep in the gospel to make sure they have a firm foundation to build and glorify God and stand true in the midst of difficult times in kooky culture. And now he comes to Ephesus. Right over here. If you don't know much about Ephesus, the city of Ephesus was the third most populous city in all of the Roman Empire. It was known as the greatest city in Asia. It had a commercial port. It was a wealthy city. It had a famous temple dedicated to Artemis, the goddess of fertility, magic, and astrology. In fact, that temple was so incredible, it's listed as one of the seventh wonders of the world for that time. And the temple of Artemis was so important, they housed their bank in it. All of their important documents, all of their important resources were stored in the temple of Artemis because it had such garnered the support and encourage and confidence of the people, they thought no one would dare defile the temple. 
They were so dedicated to this temple. Everything they valued was stored inside. In addition to that, Ephesus was recognized as a center for the occult and the religion in the region. It was a collecting place for superstition and dark arts. It was a cesspool of the demonic realm. In fact, magic was so popular in Ephesus, they coined a term about it. Any document that contained magic or a spell in that document, it was called a, quote, Ephesian writing because they assumed that it had some sort of foundational element in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was so committed to the occult and demonic activity. Many people believe that's why Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 6, he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul's talking to a group of people that are surrounded by magic and demons, occult, and that's everything people recognize and value. Ephesus was a waterhole for every kind of magician, clairvoyant and criminal, con artists, murderers, perverts, they all found Ephesus be the fertile ground for their growing life. And that's the city Paul enters next. And I'd love to show you how Paul entered it. If you've been following around with Paul through us, uh, with us, you're going to know already how Paul enters it. But look how he starts. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8. He enters it just like he did every city. He goes into a city of Ephesus known for its corruption, known for its its demonic activity and for its love for the occult. But he goes into that kooky situation just as he does every situation. Look at verse 8. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Again, these terms shouldn't be new to you. This is how Paul enters every synagogue. Boldly means he spoke frankly, confidently, openly. He held nothing back. He reasoned with them. He had dialogue. He had communication. It took months and he just had interactions where he shared his opinion, allowed people to ask questions. He had conversations. Man, we have this idea that Paul just went into to a feet to the city of Ephesus, waved some yellow signs in front of an Olympic Games, and everyone gave their lives to Jesus. That's not how it happened. Paul labored, spent months having conversations with people, wrestling with them about the truths of God. In fact, look, said he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuaded them about the kingdom of God. Persuaded, that term means Paul worked hard to win them over. He labored and talked to them so much. He gave them so much reason that it overcame their preconceived notion of rejecting Christ. The term labored paints a picture of the apostle Paul lassoing them and pulling them single-handedly through the pearly gates of heaven. Man, that's how ministry happened in Ephesus. Paul went into this kooky culture. He spoke boldly, had conversations, he labored, he pulled people in. And I want you to focus 
on what he talked about. See, it would have been so easy for Paul to go into the synagogue and start talking about the political corruption. He could have gone into the synagogue and started talking about all the immorality of culture. He could have gone into the synagogue trying to dismantle all of the houses of the occult, but he didn't do any of that. Instead, look at what he spoke about. He boldly spoke, reason persuaded them about the kingdom of God as if that is the answer to all of the world's problems. Paul didn't trouble himself with all that other stuff. He came and talked about the kingdom of God. That phrase, kingdom of God, it's God's power being exercised over all of his creation. The kingdom of God is mentioned 66 times in the New Testament alone. And you want to know who spoke about the kingdom of God most often? Jesus. It's the foundational message of his ministry on earth. The kingdom of God. In fact, when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. You remember that? And Jesus taught them how to pray. Look at how that prayer starts. Matthew chapter six, it says this, Jesus answered, pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, you wanna know how to pray? Stop praying about your kingdom. Stop praying about your goal. Start praying about your will and start praying about God's kingdom and God's will. And there came another uncomfortable question in my heart. Here's a question that came to my mind. Hey, Brian, what kingdom do you focus on more? What kingdom dominates a lot of your thought? What kingdom do you worry about? What kingdom do you exercise most of your money towards? What kingdom do you talk to people about more? Hey, Brian, what kingdom do you focus on? Great question for you. Whose kingdom drives your life? Whose kingdom dominates your worry and your concern? Whose kingdom needs to be established for you to be fully content? You know what? I think especially in America, we get a little distracted. I think we get so focused building our kingdom, we actually forget about the kingdom of God. By the way, we get some glimpses of the kingdom of God in Scripture kingdom of God is so diverse as every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every color of people combined together in community because of the power of God. Man, in one setting in the kingdom of God, you have people like me who worship with your hands in your pockets, and then you have people like Ronnie who don't. In the kingdom of God, only the kingdom of God. Only the kingdom of God can accomplish what all of us are wanting to do. And here's the problem. See, Paul, when he went into a dark and kooky culture, he knew the fix, the gospel. And he didn't get distracted by their stuff. We do. 
See, Paul went into the city of Ephesus, a dark and kooky culture, I would argue, kookier than ours. I know people say, this is the most alarming time in human history. It's not. It's just simply not. Paul went into a kookier culture than ours. He went straight into the synagogue and spoke boldly, powerfully, confidently about the gospel. And what I want to show you are three things that happened to him and three things that we should expect to happen to us. If we go into a dark and kooky culture like California, armed with the gospel, preaching about the kingdom of God, man, I think that's going to make a difference. In fact, I'm going to go off script again. I'm sorry, Joanne. There's not going to be a slide for this. Flip in the book, in the, the Bible. Flip to the right. Sorry, I get all excited when it comes to this. Flip to the right, Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. I want to show you something that drives the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 26. Go to verse 18. Acts chapter 26, 18. Paul is giving a defense for his ministry, and he's in the middle of describing what Jesus told him about his ministry, about his commitment, about his call. He focuses on rescuing from the Jewish people and from Gentiles to who I'm sending to you. Look at verse 18. Here's the mission that God gave Paul, and I want to encourage you, and I believe that this is the mission that God gave us. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Do you catch that? Seems like Jesus is acknowledging darkness. Man, how easy it would have been. Paul, go fix the dark. But that's not what he says. Hey, open their eyes so that they might choose to leave the dark for the light. He acknowledges it's the dominion of Satan. Hey, Paul, go defeat Satan. That's not Paul's job. Jesus already did that. Paul, don't get distracted by Satan. You're about souls. Go, be used by God to open their eyes that they might leave the dominion of Satan and join the kingdom of God. Man, Paul didn't get distracted by fixing all the world's problems. That wasn't his job. He got focused on opening the eyes of every person he could find that they might see Jesus as he did that they might leave this kooky culture and render into the blissful communion of God that gives them peace that's beyond human comprehension, a joy that's overflowing in this broken world and promises an eternity of, eternity of glory in the presence of God forever. No, I don't think Paul was worried one bit about going to Ephesus. Because he's confident in the gospel. What if? What if American Christians stopped worrying about fixing the darkness of the world and defeating Satan on our own? What if we just spent our time helping individuals see Jesus? That he's already defeated Satan. He's already accomplished the work. All they need to do is join. 
Let me show you, I think in good conscience, I need to make you aware of three things that happened to Paul and what I believe three things would also happen to us. Starts with a big biblical but in verse nine, just when you think, man, Paul's on fire, working for three months, amazing things gonna happen, right? Look at verse nine, back in Acts chapter 19, verse nine, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. First thing Paul experienced, going boldly into Ephesus, Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Rejection. And we've talked about this throughout. Man, just because you're preaching the glory of God doesn't mean everyone's going to receive it with a smile on their face. Look how he decides he goes to the synagogue, to the place where people who are interested in God go. But look how he describes some of them. Hardened. The term hardened means stubborn, obstinate. They were stuck in their place with their heels dug in the ground. Not only that, disobedient. That word disobedient doesn't mean they just didn't do what the Apostle Paul said. A term disobedient reserved for they rejected the gospel. They just flat out said, nope, no thanks. We don't want it. We don't agree with it. We reject it. So Paul's ministering to these people, and for some of them, they dig in their heels, discrediting the gospel. Nope, we're not dead in our sins. We're not less in our trespasses. We don't worry about the judgment of God. We're staying right here. But wait, we're not done. He continues, he said, and they were speaking evil of the way, of the gospel before the people. That term, speaking evil, they would curse the gospel. They would denounce it outwardly. And this wasn't some simple rejection. This was a vile opposition which likely had some demonic overtones to it where they were claiming their magic against the power of the gospel. Man, this was a kooky, crazy rejection. The rejection that would likely cause many of us to just say, okay, we're out. We're done. We quit. Not Paul. It would cause some people, all right, we're leaving Ephesus. We're going to go to Philadelphia. They love Jesus there, not Paul. Paul believed God called him to Ephesus and he believed that the power of the gospel would have a difference. So he just simply moved locations next door where he'd reason daily, hold school, talk with disciples, became his new base of operations. It's a school of Tyrannus. Interesting thing just for fun because I geek out on this stuff. Looked up Tyrannus. Most people believe that wasn't his name given to him at birth. They don't know his birth given name. It's probably something like Jimmy. But all the people of the city knew him as Tyrannus. That name means tyrant. Man, Tyrannus ran a school. And he was a tyrant. Everyone had, anyone have a teacher? Is this a tyrant? Some of you who are homeschooled? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, this guy was known throughout the city, man. He drove a hard school, but he had a gushy spot in his heart for Jesus. Man, what a testimony right there. Paul's like, hey, we're moving our situation all the way over to the tyrant school. And people are like, what? Oh, no, 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 he's pro-God. Any of you who are teachers, it's an encouragement to you. God still works in your classroom. 
in your life and in your ministry, whether it's in your living room, a public school or a Christian school, a college, online, God uses you. Look what happened in verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's go back to that map. I want to make sure you understand the vast environment out of what Paul was doing in the little school of Tyrannus the Tyrant, this entire red area, the Bible says, was influenced, impacted. Everyone heard about the word of the Lord. What Paul started in Ephesus impacted an entire region, and we look at that and say, what? How did that happen? I mean, what did God do? What would do turn something that goes from a school in the impacting an entire region. Let me show you. Look at verse 11. We read this. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the disease left them and the evil spirits went out. Well, that would do it, wouldn't it? I mean, God does such a work in the apostle Paul that people are going to him and stealing his handkerchiefs to go home and heal their daughters and their sons, restore their moms and their dads, free their neighbors from demons. Man, can I ask you, how far would you go? I have a mother-in-law in the hospital right now. I gotta tell you, as much as she tries to force me to eat bananas, I would drive to the end of the earth if I could promise her healing. Everyone from this region went in hopes that they could just get something from Paul. But Luke wants to make sure of something. See, these weren't just miracles. God wasn't just doing a work in Paul. Look at what he says. God, number one, let's make sure we know who's doing the work, right? This isn't Paul's idea. This wasn't Paul's prayer. This wasn't Paul trying to pawn off his, his hankies on the internet. This is God's idea. This is God's choice. This is God's plan. plan. God is doing this outside of the ideas of Paul. God is performing, and look at this, extraordinary miracles. That term extraordinary means it's rare. It's a unique instance. This isn't something you should expect to see. Listen, if you wake up in pain, sometimes I wake up in pain, I turn on the TV at 1, 1.30 in the morning. By the way, don't ever do that. There's just horrible stuff on t TV. But then there's always someone who's promised you, if you send them 100 bucks, they can send you this little jar of healing ointment. Or if you just sign on with them, they can promise you this or that. I'm going to tell you, if anyone has promised you healing of the Lord for your money, that's not what it's being described here. Luke is saying, listen, because Paul was birthing this ministry out of this city that was known for demonic activity, witchcraft, and magic, where everyone's eyes were focused and assumed and trusted the supernatural. God chose to do something amazing in the apostle Paul that rose him up above everyone else, where everyone would notice and recognize his power, his meaning God. First thing Paul re re received going into a kooky culture 
preaching the gospel, number one is rejection. Second thing you need to know, though, be aware of. Second thing that comes, impersonation. Man, when God's doing a work, when something amazing's happening, watch out for charlatans. Watch out for imposters. Watch out for impersonators. There's all these people that are going to want to get in the action so they can make a buck. They can make a name for themselves. They can get their book deal. They can get famous. They can rise up and have a political future. There's going to be imposters. Look, after verse 11 and 12, when all this amazing stuff's going on, look at verse 13. But, big biblical but, right there. But, also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. In this culture, in this day, in cities like Ephesus, Jewish leaders had this respected position because people assumed they had direct access to their God. Only they could say his name. Only they knew how to say his name. And so there's some people who would take that false respect and utilize it to gain income and build a business. And I want to tell you, man, Jesus talked about this. Jesus talked about impersonators, imposters, and charlatans. Look at what he said in the Gospel of Matthew to his disciples. He told it in a parable. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares. Tares are little seeds that when they begin to germinate, they look just like wheat. You can't tell what's wheat and what's weed. Lowercase w. <laughs> you got to clarify those things, right? You can't tell what's weed and what's wheat until it fully germinates. And by then it's too late. It's infected your entire crop. It says, while his men were asleep, someone comes and intentionally plants those weeds. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident and they recognized their entire field was spoiled. And Jesus used that as a parable saying, listen, that's what Satan does. Satan plants imposters and charlatans who look the same way. But their whole goal is to infect and defile the movement of God. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Look at this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And Jesus, the apostle Paul, there's going to be all these apostles, all these imposters, all these charlatans, all these deceivers, all these impersonators, and there's everything in us that says, let's go get them. But here's the crazy thing. In Jesus' parable, the disciples are like, let's go get them. And Jesus said, no, 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 don't worry about it. God will handle it. That's the same thing God said through the apostle Paul. Relax. God's going to handle those guys. You'll be about the kingdom of God. Well, all those imposters, all those false gospel people, they start gathering the hearts of people, lead them astray. Well, then you get her, better get louder. If we're so worried about the imposters, then we're not doing our job. We have the power of God behind us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit to be a reflection of his glory to the ends of the globe. 
Man, if someone can get on TV without the Spirit and do that, there's a problem. Jesus, Paul, there's going to be imposters. Don't worry about them. You worry about your job. You play your position. You focus on the kingdom of God, opening people's eyes so that they might choose to leave darkness into light. They might choose to leave the dominion of Satan, enter into the kingdom of God. Let all those other wackadoodles, let God handle them. Oh, that's, I should have looked. She found wackadoodle. I wonder whose name <laughs> popped up. So here's the focus. Paul said, her, in this text, man, if we're going to bring the gospel into a kooky culture, let's expect rejection. Let's expect impersonators. But don't freak out. God said he'd handle it. Look how he handled it here. Verse, thir- or, uh, verse 14. Here's an example. Now, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. Let's just put quotes in that, right? Like he claimed to be this person of importance. They were doing this, verse 15. And look at this. I love this story. If any of you have sons or daughters, like I already know all the Bible, there's nothing else cool in there, take them to this story. It's fantastic. I'm pretty confident the Action Bible has not illustrated this text. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? And in the Greek, look at this. They they go and they try to use the power of God, which they're not filled with, to cast out this demon. And this demon comes to him and he says, hey, I recognize Jesus. And the term he uses is gnosko. I am intimately aware of Jesus. Look, I know all about Jesus. That dude freaks me out. Jesus, I know. I know about Paul. I've heard about him. I know who he is. Jesus freaks me out. Paul makes me nervous. You? Nah. I love that. I know Jesus. I'm aware of Paul. Who do you think you are? You think you're going to go and conquer the dominion of Satan? With what? You think you can conquer the dominion of Satan with your money? With your political party? With your good intentions? That's what the demon's saying. Look, I get Jesus. I know all about that guy. I know Paul. I'm aware of him. I'll know who you are. What do you think you're about to do? And look what happens. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued them and overpowered them. And look at this. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I looked up naked. Know what it means? Naked. (laughs) Man, they went in there thinking they're all hot stuff and they left with nothing. And I'm telling you, nothing. I looked up subdued and overpowered and tried to come up with a term that would define it in our vernacular. And so I came after and I used the little hipsonary that I sometimes use for your benefit. The little hipsonary, a banging pocket reference for cool peeps everywhere. So I use this because I still tuck in my shirts. So I use this. I looked for a word. You know what I found? I found this. Pwn. 
No O, by the way, if you want to be cool, you don't use it with an O. Pwn means to dominate or own someone so thoroughly you could pawn them off. And here's it, it's used in a sentence in my Hiptionary. Tristan, I pwned you in Pictionary. Okay? So now I know there's a number of you who lack confidence and you think my Hiptionary is outdated and so you bought me the Gen Z Dictionary. So I looked up a word in the Gen Z dictionary that would match the situation. You know what I found? Pwned. <laughs> Seems like the little hiptionary is still hip after all. Pwned. And look, to dominate or own someone so thoroughly you could pawn them off, except Gen Z dictionaries use, a different, use it in a sentence differently because they assume Gen Z people don't know what Pictionary is. So here it is. Used in a sentence. Uh, where is it? No, well, I'll look it up here in the book. Pwned. I pwned you in Pokemon. So, regardless of which works for you, Pictionary or Pokemon, you have to understand when you go and attempt to conquer the power of this world that God has allowed him to have, this is the dominion of Satan, this is darkness, you are empowered to rescue people out of it. You want to conquer it? On your own power? You're going to get pwned. And I want you to know, you can quote me on that. <laughs> and just to give you a little confidence, let me show you what God did. See, God said he's going to handle it. He's going to take it all. Look, he said, don't worry. Look what God did with this whole situation. So these guys decided they were going to make a name for themselves using the name of God without the power of God. Look at verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. You see that? It wasn't Paul's miracles. It wasn't the amazing power of God. It was these seven suckers who wanted to somehow go and conquer the world with their own power, and they got whooped. And God used that to bring the third thing we need to be expecting, and that's transformation. God used those seven guys to do this. Look what happened. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. All these non-believers, because of what happened to those seven guys, fear, like all of a sudden these unsafe people had awe and a healthy respect of God. The name of Jesus, it says, was being magnified. They were exalting his name, glorifying him, honoring, heavenly regarded what he was about. Man, these seven sons getting whooped by a demon when God says, don't worry about all that stuff, I'll handle it. Man, God did, and he used it to bring transformation in the lives of all these lost people where they had the fear of God and they were giving their hearts to God. They were lifting up the name of Jesus. First thing to expect is transformation of lost people. Man, if we would just boldly go and proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel of salvation... The lost will be saved. But I want you to notice something. God's not done yet. Look what happens. See, transformation didn't occur just with the lost, but with the saved. Look at verse 18. Many also of those who had believed. These are Christians. They're going to church. These are church people. 
Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. All of a sudden, there was this moment where even Christians were in awe and fear where they came face to face with the fact that they were imposters too. Look what happened. Look, 19, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in books together. Oh, sorry. Began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Man, all of a sudden, the church people, Christians, start confessing, oh, I'm still practicing magic. I claim to trust God on Sunday, but I live like hell Monday through Saturday. I mean, God did such a work when the gospel came into Ephesus. It didn't just transform the lives of the lost, it transformed the lives of believers alike. And they kept coming. It wasn't just one moment. It's like every Sunday people were coming and confessing. That term confessing, by the way, means to acknowledge before others what they are doing is wrong. Disclosing takes it even a step further, allowing others to know and welcome their accountability for their actions. Christians were coming into church saying, I have this sin in my life. And I need you to hold me accountable to cut it out. Man, the power of the gospel not only transformed a kooky culture like Ephesus, it brought lost people to become saved people and even transformed saved people says those saved people started plucking out all the sins of their life and burning them together, and it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's equivalent to 150 households' annual, annual earnings. So I calculated 150,000 times the annual household of someone in the Chino Valley comes out to over $15 million dollars. Here's the last question that God put in my heart and I want to offer to yours. What do you need to pluck out of your heart and throw into the fire? Man, we whine about the kooky culture. We want to see God transform Chino Valley and around the world. I'm confident in the power of God to do it. And we've seen it happen throughout scripture. But I think one of the first things that happened is we gotta get our own lives right. Because look how this section ends, verse 20. As a result of what the church was doing, confessing their sins, verse 20. And so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The thing that launched that forward were Christians. Recognizing I'm an imposter too. I claim one thing and live a different thing. I sing about this, but I practice this. I pray for the kingdom of God, but I focus on my kingdom on earth. My question What sin do you need to pluck from your own soul and cast on the fire? Maybe it's greed. 
Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's this need for control that you're willing to lie, cheat, and steal from other people to get it. Maybe your sin has eroded your marriage. Maybe your sin has eroded your family. Or like I said, maybe you're so focused on your private kingdom on earth, you have lost focus of building the kingdom of God. What's one sin you need to pluck from your life today? And cast on the fire. We're encouraged to do that in Hebrews. Look what Hebrews said, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Continues fixing our eye on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Man, if you want to see transformation happen in our culture, we have to get our focus right. The gospel is the answer and the only answer. And it first needs to transform us. Let's pray. Fathers of church, we come before you. God, many of us, many of us are here because we believe in your power. God, we have received your salvation. God, there's something powerful about coming on Sundays that surrounds us with our friends, other broken people that you have saved, you have redeemed, you have restored. And God, we confess to you that sometimes it's so easy to come and focus on you for an hour and then we go into our lives Monday through Saturday and we focus on ourselves. We love to judge humanity on their failures and yet, God, we've ceased to recognize our own brokenness too. God, I pray, open our eyes, allow us to see the gospel as Paul did. Give us confidence in it, boldness in it, a dedication to it, God, that it infects how we live at home, how we do our job, how we worship, how we embrace our culture. God, I pray, help us fully understand it as Paul prayed. God, give us confidence. As imposters come, God, don't get us, don't let us be distracted. And God, I pray if there's any sin in our hearts, sin that Satan uses to drown us in shame, cause us to run and hide from others. There's sin in our life that causes us to fear the future or doubt your plan. God, I pray as God's people are crying out to you now, as God's people are confessing their brokenness and their failures to you, God, I pray you hear them. God, we receive our 
repentance, of greed, our hunger for power. God, our lust for things of this world, our anger, God, as your people confess their failures to you, I pray that you hear them and you respond as you've promised. God, may you forgive us our sins, declare us righteous, renew us. God, restore the joy of our salvation, renew the brokenness of our lives and use us for your glory. And God, we praise you've taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, God, on earth. We're done with our kingdom. We give that up. We want to be about your kingdom and your kingdom alone. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And God, please just give us our daily bread. We're tired of worrying about investments and stock markets and economies and gas prices. God, you handle it. God, you give us what we need. And God, please, we do pray, forgive us our trespasses. God, forgive us our sins. Allow us to leave here open and unashamed. Allow us to leave here confidence of our communion with you and the rightness of our relationship. Allow us to be freed from our worry, our embarrassment and allow us to leave in confidence that comes with your forgiveness and God we promise we will work hard to forgive those who have harmed us God we pray don't lead us into temptation God please deliver us from evil God protect us put a hedge of protection around us and our kids and our grandkids that they may remain on the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, please deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.